Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike. And Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, tell us where we stopped last week and what we have to look forward to this week. Well, Mike, last week we closed off a few things. First of all, we closed off the first year of the Lubbers Hole podcast, and we spent some time looking back at our first year and looking forward as we were finishing Treason's Harbour. And in that final chapter of Treason's Harbour, Jack got that new mission to go out to Zambra, where things didn't go expected. The surprise and the Pollocks in company encountered the French. And in the clash with the French, the Pollocks blew up, and we had the death of Jack's nemesis, Admiral Hart. Now, In all that followed, Stephen managed to get Laura Fielding away from the French agents in Valletta on Malta and took her aboard the surprise on their trip to Gibraltar by way of Zambra. Now, this week, Jack is in Gibraltar. He's going to meet up with Commander Ives to report on his last mission, the mission to Zambra. He's also going to meet Charles Fielding, Laura's husband, which I think we might have thought would be a bit of a tickly moment for our Jack. Um, we're going to get caught up on what's happening with the French intelligence network in Malta. And something new looms on the horizon, on the far horizon for Jack and Stephen. And you might say the same for Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. Yeah, we have a sneaking suspicion we might find them all at some point on the far side of the world, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So for those of you who are Patrick Toll fans like me and love to listen on recorded books, you might be surprised to learn that the book itself actually starts with an author's note, which is not on the recording. And O'Brien tells us that few authors are wholly original. And he makes some uh, examples, Shakespeare, Chaucer, and himself, which he says he puts himself in a much lower class than them. But he does say that In addition to the logbooks and dispatches, letters, memoirs, contemporary reports that he normally draws from, he does point out that he has taken a description in this book, which we'll get to much later, from another author who he names, and and we'll come back to that. But he also tells us in this note that he has essentially run out of history, that if he had known that these books would take off like they had— and that he would write so many of them and enjoy them so much, and they would be enjoyed by all of us so much, he would have started Master and Commander much earlier than he did. So he tells us that in this book, he's going to have action from 1812, and that it's, it's also contemporary. It's based on real things, but that in the future, he's going to stay in 1812, and he calls it kind of a hypothetical 1812A, 1812B, And he assures us that this will actually be the real Navy. Everything that he talks about will be real, although his historical timeline is going to alter a lot. So a lot is going to happen over a next number of books, all of them seeming to occur kind of in the same year here. Now, as he does that, he and and assuring of his veracity and sticking to the truth and the way things really were back then, he kind of steps on the toes of Harry Potter fans. He assures, for example, his readers that they will meet no basilisk that destroy with their eyes, trying to say he's not going to wander into fiction and fantasy. But we kind of like that. And he says that should any crocodiles appear, 
he undertakes that they shall devour their prey without tears. So I'm not going to speak on behalf of the Peter Pan fans here, but I am glad that we know the War of 1812 is still on. We know that things are happening all around the world and that O'Brien still has lots to draw on for quite some time. He does. So we're going to stay in 1812-ish, 1813-ish for a while. Anyway, Jack, in his fictional timeline, back in Jack's world, is aboard the flagship in Gibraltar as Chapter 1 opens. And the word is being passed for him. Now, Mike, Jack's in what I think of as his default state whenever he's close to the flagship, which is to say he's dreading meeting with the Admiral, in this case, Commander-in-Chief Ives, not knowing how the Admiral is going to take the fact that, in this case, Jack succeeded in carrying out none of the Admiral's orders. And actually, the, the, lots of the rest of the first part of the chapter is O'Brien doing this brilliant piece of exposition of retroactively catching us up, just in case you're a new reader, catching us up with what happened in the close of Treason's Harbour. O'Brien summarises Jack's orders that had been in place for the Surprise's last mission before heading home. We get a reminder that the Surprise was due to be laid up or sold out of the service or even sent to the breaker's yard. And that in this kind of penultimate state, the Surprise was headed off to go to Zambra on the Barbary Coast, northwest Africa, there to reason with the Day of Mascara, who was sidling up to the French and extorting Britain. And Jack was to consider whether if this was unreasonable, he might bring the British consul home and seize, burn, sink or destroy ships of the Day of Mascara. And Jack remembered leaving the Pollocks at Zambra Bay with an easy mind, or at least with a mind as easy as was right in one who had spent most of his life on the sea, that dangerous, utterly unreliable element, with nothing but a plank between him and an eternity, it says. Only then to be betrayed by the Day of Mascara and by the French, fired upon by a fort, engaged by the three French ships, and as we heard, the Pollocks blown up in close proximity to the French 80-gun ship of the line, badly damaged itself in the fighting and the explosion, likely never to reach Toulon again, and a heavy French frigate. Wrecked when Jack, in a cunning feat of manoeuvre, had lured him over a reef, Jack never having actually managed to get to talk to the day or the consul or to do any kind of injury to a masquerine ship. Now, having had all of this story played out for us, we're back to Jack, who knows that Ives has got a reputation for breaking men under his command has got no idea whether the messages Jack sent had ever reached the commander-in-chief before Jack had got back to Gibraltar. And Mike, not only is this often Jack Aubrey's state of mind, like a naughty schoolboy in the headmaster's outer office waiting for punishment, we also heard in the last couple of chapters of the previous book that the timing of the arrival of news was a big factor. We weren't sure whether the news of the escape and arrival of Charles Fielding was going to get to Valletta ahead of Jack and Stephen. And this was a big factor. So uncertainty about the timing of news and uncertainty about whether all this would be seen as a success, I think was looming large in Jack's mind as he's waiting to meet, he believed, with the commander-in-chief. Yeah, it turns out it's not the commander-in-chief that's calling for it and passing the word for Jack. It's the captain of the fleet. And, and the captain of the fleet is confined to his cabin. He's got the flu. There's a big influenza outbreak. But he tells Jack that his wife and kids have recently moved close to Ashgrove Cottage, where Jack's wife and kids are, and he hopes that the families could meet. And as they're talking, 
O'Brien tells us that the commander-in-chief, Eyes, is dictating furiously to two clerks simultaneously. And here we we see a little bit of why Jack is dreading this meeting. The commander-in-chief is taking many captains to task for rudeness to other officers, for having disorderly ships, for bringing unauthorized women back from England, women who were, he points out, wasting water, you know, washing their unmentionables. And he says, if this water wasting doesn't stop, all unauthorized women will be shipped back to England. He's uh, also very upset by the lack of respect being shown by officers coming aboard the flagship, you know, not pulling off or touching their hats. And he takes a breath. These two clerks are, are writing one after another, one after another. And he turns to Pocock, who's sitting in the meeting. He says, the young people now coming up are, for the most part, frippery and gimcrack. <laughs> and, you know, this is this is O'Brien at his finest, yeah. rippery, you know, at Engram height of, of 1800, showing or unnecessary ornament in architecture, dress or language, gimcrack, you know, flimsy or poorly but deceptively attractive, so poorly made, but deceptively attractive. So, you know, kind of not a high opinion of people, you know, young people nowadays. We know that that Ives, a little bit like Jack, is, is a bit old-fashioned. And he goes on he, in another big letter going out to all the captains. He's talking about all these captains who are have been found dressed like shopkeepers in colored clothes and wearing round hats with their uniforms on shore. And he tells them that if they're spotted, they will be arrested and court-martialed. So absolutely. If I'm right. Jack, you know. Absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my. Right, right. That's right. What's wrong with these people <laughs> nowadays? Boy, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of my long hair in the 60s and, and me and my dad having these kinds of discussions. Different so, times, right. anyway. Different but, times. <laughs> right, right. So, they're, well, they're all interrupted by these trumpets announcing that the emperor of Morocco is arriving early for a meeting with Ives. And, and Ives is very upset. And he asks his secretary, Yarrow, to please let Aubrey know that that you know he can't see him right now. He'll catch him, you know, maybe later for dinner, or if that doesn't suit, maybe tomorrow. So uh, Jack gets to kind of go stew for another another <laughs> period of time before seeing the commander in chief. Yeah, poor old Jack. I think that softens Jack's sort of worry a little. Um, meanwhile, for us, I think it's it's really great fun. I know O'Brien's used this device of us sort of looking over the shoulder of a senior person dishing out responses to letters. And it, it's really great, it, as well as emphasizing the bad mood of the Admiral and adding in a bit of jeopardy for Jack. It lets us in cleverly on some of the kind of letter discourse. We get to hear a little bit about what the original letter must have said without actually getting to read it. And there's all this nice sly humor. And it also, I think, right. lets the character, in this case Ives, show off with flourishes of language like frippery and gimcrack. We get the period feel. And by the way, Mike, reading the author's note again, I wonder how much of the text of these letters were actually lifted straight from source, which O'Brien clearly had access to. He gets to have right. fun with language as well. You know, people are a lot braver and more sarcastic on paper than they are <laughs> face to face. And it must be fun for a, an author like O'Brien, who really loves language, to let his characters let rip on the page when perhaps they can't do that necessarily so readily face to face. At least it's harder to come up with these great turns of phrase, you know, on, on the fly when you're face to face with someone. And we get a bit of easy authenticity. Now we don't know for sure what 
the real Admiral Ives or any 19th century admiral sounded like, but we do know for sure from the sources how they wrote. So we can dig in and enjoy this language knowing that, yeah, this is, this is how these guys wrote. And um, it's good fun. Jack has to commit the pretty egregious um, faux pas of declining to dine with the admiral. And the captain of the fleet doesn't take this well. We get one of O'Brien's signature adjective stacks here. These normally come from Stephen Maturin, but here is the captain of the fleet <laughs> talking about a wicked, contumelious, discontented, froward, mutinous dog. Now, Mike, we'll, we'll come back to contumelious in a minute. Until, okay. until the captain of the fleet learns that Jack is engaged to dine with a lady and the captain understands for sure straight away. He says there is something wonderfully comfortable about having a lady's legs under one's table, Aubrey. And Mike, I think you and I would both agree. With, with the right lady and the right legs, it's a happy time. And now this word contumelious is another really kind of rich relish of words here. Um, scornful and insulting is what contumelious means. Insolent. Um, it's an engram hit dead on 1812. Patrick O'Brien points out that Aubrey, by land, was quite devoted to women. Indeed, his devotion had very nearly been his undoing before this, as we remember very well from his time in Halifax a few novels ago. But he was worried about this particular pair of legs, they being Laura Fielding's legs. And O'Brien then goes on to give us the backstory on Laura Fielding, the midnight flit from Malta in a rainstorm, telling us that Jack hadn't questioned Stephen about it because Jack knew very well that his intimate friend Maturin was deeply concerned with naval and political intelligence and he, Jack, had asked no questions, accepting the situation as a necessary evil. And he goes on to tell that the rumours about Jack and Laura and how the rumour had reached her escaped husband, Captain Charles Fielding, who we learned in quite some detail was intensely jealous and was inclined to believe this rumour. And when Jack learned that Laura and Charles had arrived the previous evening in Gibraltar, he'd invited them both for dinner at Reed's Hotel. And Jack, we learn, is really worried about this dinner, as, as I think any of us would be, and doesn't want to return to the ship because word has gotten out that the surprise, his favourite, his beloved ship, was condemned. The joyful surprise, we learn, is a sad and dismal place. He knows that this wonderful, experienced crew that rarely saw punishment whose people knew each other so well, were unsurpassed in seamanship and gunnery, the ship and the crew would now be broken up and the crew sent to other ships and the officers thrown ashore because surprise is too small, only 500 tons, and undergunned, only 28 guns, for modern requirements. And we'd heard earlier on in the canon, of course, Mike, about how navies, modern navies, especially the American navy, were building ships of the class of frigate that were both bigger and more heavily gunned than the surprise was. So it's going to be hard for surprise to encounter one of these modern heavy frigates and give anything like an account of herself. And in addition to this rather glum news about the surprise, Jack learns as he goes through his mail that business problems at home and his debt at home are piling up. So it's a pretty dismal time for our Jack. Yeah, certainly certainly not the time that he wants to be thrown on shore. That's for sure. Yeah. Still, if it's dismal for Jack, it's even more dismal for other people. Yeah, it's so true. As, as Jack's sitting here kind of thinking about all these issues and the sadness that's swept across everything, he's approached by a Mr. Hollum, 
a midshipman who had served under Jack when Jack was the acting captain of The Lively back uh, several books ago. Yeah. And Jack remembers him as an older, unexceptionable, unexceptional, uh, kind of no vice, no obvious merit midshipman who had, in O'Brien's word, Jack's words, no evident zeal for seamanship, gunnery, or navigation, and no gift for dealing with men. Um, he's a 40-year-old. He was passed for lieutenant, but never commissioned. So he's become kind of a perpetual midshipman. And midshipmen, kind of unlike a lot of the rest of the crew, are only paid when they're actively working on a ship. So, you know, Jack feels really sorry for midshipmen, and especially somebody like this guy standing there out of work for a long time, but he knows that he can't use them with a surprise. So he kind of hardens his heart a little bit because he knows the request is coming. And and Jack thinks uh, to himself, besides, it was evident that Holland was an unlucky man, one that would bring bad luck to the ship. The crew, an intensely superstitious set of men would dislike him and perhaps treat him with disrespect, which would mean starting the hateful round of punishment and resentment all over again. So Jack, you know, absolutely kind of brings himself together and just responds kindly that he says he has absolutely no room and it wouldn't make any sense because the ship's going to pay off in like two weeks anyways. And Hollum tells him, you know, gosh, two weeks would make all the difference for him. He would even come aboard as a common seaman. He would, you know, he's willing to sling his hammock before the mast. And Jack, you know, Jack feels so bad. And he finally says, well, you know, let me offer you, here's a five pound note, pay me back out of your next prize money. And Hollum clenches his hands behind his back. He's trying to keep this kind of happy face on, but he twitches. Jack is afraid that he's going to burst out crying. And and Hollum just says goodbye and starts to walk off. And Jack thinks to himself, oh my gosh, this is blackmail. But nevertheless, he calls him back. He scribbles out a note, tells him to report to the surprise before noon and give this to the officer of the watch. So here is our man, Jack. <laughs> he just... Just can't help himself sometimes. God bless wow. him. I love him. And it, I think it's really interesting to to note this moment when we first get to know Hollum. For sure, we, we knew a little of him back on the, aboard the Lively in, uh, in Post Captain. But this is sort of a pre-shadowing of the movie. This action, of course, it doesn't isn't represented in the movie Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World. But this character, Hollum is and in the movie he's played by british actor lee ingleby who i see a lot these days on british tv he's he was in uh, the harry potter movies as well um if he's ever listened to this lee you don't seem to have aged very much you pretty much now as you did then and he seems to do a good job with awkward and conflicted characters so um maybe this character holland is going to be important for us and mike i look at this introduction to the character of mr holland and I think back to when we met Laura Fielding at the beginning of Treason's Harbour. You know, she was portrayed as attractive and charming and maybe a bit flirtatious and maybe in a cardboard cutout female character that would have been enough. But O'Brien characterised her right from the beginning as not a pushover, as quite an independent, strong character. And that turned out to be important for uh, for her character development and as a way of really making us pay attention to her and care about what happens to her. And I think we have a similar thing with Hollum. He's certainly portrayed as poor and unfortunate and a bit pitiable. This guy 
clinging to the remains of his possible career as a naval officer, but not completely spineless and not completely pitiful. He's got a bit of stubbornness. He's stubborn enough to turn down Jack's offer of charity and to propose coming aboard as a foremast hand. So I think there's something interesting about his character. So I think we're motivated to follow him. And I really like how O'Brien does this with secondary characters, you know, all the way back to James Dillon. None of these secondary characters right. are one dimensional. But Mike, I, I can't think right now of an example of a Patrick O'Brien secondary character, naval officer who is introduced as any kind of a conflicted as or tortured soul and then has a particularly easy time so, oh, Mr. Hollum, I'm a bit worried about you right from the beginning. Right, right. This does not bode well. I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. As soon as Hollum sort of walks off the stage, on walks Captain Billy Sutton of HMS Nemur. And Billy is an old friend of Jack's. They had served together as youngsters, and he's on shore to travel back to England to serve in his parliament seat. So there's an acting captain on his ship. And, and he looks at Jack and he, he says that Jack looks like a cat who's lost its kittens. <laughs> and Jack tells him about surprise being ordered home. And then he says, uh, and, and I'll quote O'Brien here, that he's just taken on a middle-aged master's mate off the shore because he looks so goddamn thin, poor devil. It was mere sentimentality, mere silly indulgence. It will do him no good in the end. He will be neither grateful or useful, and he'll corrupt my youngsters and upset the hands. He has Jonah written all over his face. So as you say, Uh poor Mr. Holland, and we seem to be getting, you know, let me, if O'Brien says, let me underscore this, let me bold it, (laughs) let me put it in italics here. Jack, the one thing he is kind of happy about is he'll get to report to Ive soon and get the heck away from here as soon as his launch comes in. He says, you know, people are trying to make him take men that he doesn't want. They're trying to steal men from the surprise, and he is just ready to get out of here. Um, Billy says that, uh, you know, he's kind of heard about Zambra and that sad business. Um, he was in Port Mahan when the surprises launch came in, you know, Jack had sent away a couple of boats to try to get to the commander in chief, wherever he might be, Gibraltar, yeah. Mahan, Malta. And they agreed. They're talking about it. That, that it was a trap. And Billy tells him there was a great turmoil in Valletta over the whole thing, that a high civilian had cut his throat, half a dozen people were shot. He says he's hearing this second or third hand. Um, He doesn't know, Jack asks him, he doesn't know anything about Jack's cutter. Rowan had taken it to Malta to try to find the commander-in-chief. The launch, however, which I believe Honey had taken out, was being brought back uh, here, uh, was aboard the Berwick. Um, but the Berwick had lost some sails coming in and, and you know, wanted to repair before they got in. So, you know, it might be a while before it gets in. And Jack, Jack kind of recollects that Billy knows the Admiral yeah. Ives pretty well and, and asks if he's really so very savage. And Billy assures him, yeah, he's pretty savage. And, and Sutton goes on to tell him about this midshipman. So there's a 16-year-old. Um, they had stopped a privateer. So right now, you know, things are kind of copacetic. There's a privateer. His papers are in order. But this guy goes back after they kind of left him alone. This midshipman takes a boat, goes back and makes them give them the porter that they have on board, steals the master's coat, which happens to have a silver watch on board. And the master on the privateer reports him. He's court-martialed. 
And instead of dismissing him from the service, Ives has him degraded from the rank of midshipman, has his head shaved, puts a label of the disgraceful crime on his back, and sentences him to remain on his ship to clean the head, the bathroom on the ship of 500, until Ives orders otherwise. And Sutton points out that this 16-year-old Anthony Tompkins was the son of an admiralty court lawyer in Malta. So I guess the rain falls on everybody, Mm -hmm. interest or not here. Um, Billy tells Jack, though, that he had mentioned uh, the Berwick coming ashore, that uh, Pullings is on the Berwick. And Jack kind of hopes that Reverend Martin is there, too, because he knows how much Matron likes him. And then Jack has this fleeting thought. He's, you know, he's remembering that Billy has this great way of speaking as a member of Parliament, and he knows that this dinner with the Fieldings and Stephen and him is not going to go very well, or he's worried that it won't. And so he explains the situation with the Fieldings and asks him to be there to keep the conversation going. Jack says to him, I've heard you address the electors of Hampshire in the most fearless ways, jokes bandied about, badinage, anecdotes, topics, why it's almost eloquence. (laughs) (laughs) And this badinage, this humorous or witty conversation, an engram in 1864, but an earlier peak right about this time. You know, the the Jack with his left-handed compliments, uh, uh, you know, invites Billy, but Sutton, realizing this is the beautiful Mrs. Fielding who gives Italian lessons, says he's quite happy to come to dinner. Now, the the dinner finally comes to pass. And Mike, we get one of these great moments of O'Brien just deflating something that's been, you know, tension and anxiety and jeopardy for chapters and chapters, in this case, for two whole books. We've been so worried about what's going to happen when Charles Fielding finally encounters Jack Aubrey. And what's he going to do about this perceived infidelity going on between Jack and Laura? And do you know what? It's all fine. It's all fine. Laura, who we know is pretty charming, Laura has convinced Charles of her fidelity. And she always had said that she could. She was never in doubt. So she knew her stuff. It was the rest of us that had it wrong. Charles Fielding comes in and guess what? He shakes Jack's hand, thanks him for his kindness to Laura. And Stephen and Jack, nonetheless, I think, are glad that uh, Billy is there. Um, They can't really see what Laura sees in Charles. He's not the easiest guy to get along with even though all is forgiven. And they start to resent the kind of fondness that they see that's that's clearly still there between Charles and Laura. And after he tells the story of his, his escape, um, we see that Charles Fielding sits there fondling his wife, Laura, under the table. Laura tried to revive the conversation, criticizing Commander-in-Chief Ives for this story that we hear about his treatment of Albert Tompkins. Um, she knew his mother this guy Tompkins and the beautiful hair that he'd lost and sort of regrets the fact of the humiliation of this uh, this errant midshipman. Billy, however, said, bah, long-haired midshipman whose steel watchers can lead the service into disrepute. And he is keen to sort of defend the character of Admiral Ives. He says, Sir Francis Ives is capable of great kindness, astonishing magnanimity, jovian leniency, and goes on to tell his story of his cousin, a naval officer who years early had written a skit about Ives when Ives was commander-in-chief at Cadiz. A captain of the main top had been flogged for forgetting to remove his hat during the anthem. And we know that Ives cares a thing or two about hats. 
it established great discipline at a time when there were lots of half mutinous ships coming out from the channel. And it's, you know, this is a time when blockade duty was really grim service. Someone gave Ives a copy of this skit and Ives, apparently seeking revenge, had invited the cousin, the skit writer, to dinner, sat down with these other officers, and at the end of the dinner <laughs> had had this guy sit on a high chair and read the skit out to the assembled audience. Billy recites the skit, a 15-verse parody in Genesis Exodus biblical fashion, with lots of these thous, with Ives portrayed as a jealous god. And it's, it's genuinely funny. Today's lessons from the third chapter of the Book of Discipline. Here's a taste. Verse 4. Then the captain cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O officers, parsons, seamen, and marines, that at what time ye hear the sound of the trumpet, the flute, the horn, the clarinet, the drum, the fife, and all kinds of music, ye take off your hats and worship the blue and golden image that Sir Francis Ives, the commander-in-chief, hath set up, and whoso taketh not off his hat and worshippeth shall be surely visited with the commander-in-chief's displeasure. It's, it's very funny. It's classic frat boy humour, I think, really, um, done with a certain amount of biblical flair. And this is told at some length by Billy. When the cousin gets to the end, Sir Admiral Ives, it says, had been as grim as a hanging judge all this time, and all the other officers too, burst out in a roar of laughter, told his cousin to take three months' leave in England and to dine with him on the flagship on the day he returned. That is my point, says Billy, do you see? Sir Francis can be savage where he can be kind, and there is no telling which. Well, I, I think, Mike, on that sort of mini cliffhanger, which of these two Sir Francis Iveses is Jack going to meet on that little cliffhanger? Maybe we should go and have a little cliffhanger of our own and take a short break for some refreshment. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So I, I hope you're all back refreshed. I hope you're all not too stressed out by your anxiety over which of the two characters of Sir Francis Ives Jack is going to meet. But Mike, before we carry on, I just want to say this, this is really fun. The, we had this a little bit back in the Ionian mission as well. O'Brien telling us stories that show the Navy as a family with the kind of sort of internal discipline and jealousies and rituals and in-jokes, which I think is still actually pretty true of, of the Royal Navy and of navies in general. And it's, it's a really nice bit of atmosphere and a little bit, nice bit of social color. Right. You know, Gord has told us some of these stories in his service yeah. life. I, I love these stories. Right at the break, you know, we had Billy saying that Sir Francis can be savage or he can be kind, and there's no telling which. So we're, it's the next morning, Jack is being rowed across to the flagship, and he's saying to himself, there is no telling which. So he's, uh, he's spent the morning reading his mail. A big load of mail came in, and he's heard from all his business advisors and lawyers that uh, kind of essentially telling him that uh, he needs to have a ship. He needs to have a ship capable of prize money and lots of it. So this is a doubly important meeting for Jack. And Stephen, on the same boat, kind of being rowed over, is thinking about his letters too. Diana had written him to say she'd heard an absurd story about his 
public affair with a red-haired Italian woman. And she knew it must be absurd because Stephen knew that she would not put up with an open affront from anyone on earth. Uh And Stephen, yeah, Stephen knew this was true. Exactly. And he thinks to himself, you know, Diana is going to have to be dealt with directly. Now, he had also gotten a series of letters from Sir Joseph Blaine, the head of naval intelligence. He'd written an official letter congratulating Stephen on this brilliant coup that he hoped would eliminate the French agents from Malta. Now, again, O'Brien gives us this great backstory about the operations, uh, about Blaine's lack of confidence, you know, complete confidence in Ray, how Stephen had no choice but to include Ray in you know, telling him what he knew in order to try to wipe out the French operation. And then O'Brien goes out of his way to point out, he writes, although Matron had a very considerable experience of intelligence work, and although he was wary, prescient, and acute enough to have survived several campaigns in which many of his colleagues had died, some under torture, it was by no means omniscient. He was capable of making mistakes, just like me, He also had no suspicion of the fact that Ray was a French agent, a man who admired Bonaparte as much as Matron detested him. Stephen saw Ray as somewhat flashy, unsound, over-clever fella, but he did not know he was a traitor, nor did he even suspect it. Mm. So, you know, we get this kind of a, a little mini bump, bump, bomb. It would be bigger, but we've known this all along. And I think O'Brien is, is kind of reminding us what's on Stephen's mind here, too. Yeah. And interestingly, so Joseph had included a couple other personal letters to Stephen, which had to be, O'Brien tells us, literally and figuratively decoded. They have this great way of being able to talk to each other, sometimes in code, sometimes just sounding like regular discussion, but Stephen can kind of read behind it here. And he's telling him all about these rivalries back in Whitehall, unseen influences, underhanded dealings, that Blaine's friends and followers were being displaced. And and this kind of a very ominous note. And and then in another note with a very different tone, um, Blaine was telling Stephen about an American plan, a plan called happiness and telling Stephen that he'll hear all about it on the flagship and adding, O'Brien says, it appears to me that at this juncture, there's a great deal to be said for viewing the Coleoptera of the far side of the world until the storm blows over. Mm. A great deal to be said for the pursuit of happiness. Now, Interesting. So Coleoptera, these beetles, you know, 400,000 species, about 25% of all animal life forms. And we know that Sir Joseph Blaine is a big beetles guy, a big insects guy. He's a naturalist like Stephen. And he's telling Stephen, you know, things are not going well here in London. You and Jack get over here to the far side of the world in the pursuit of happiness. Now, Stephen thinks to himself, the pursuit of happiness the vainest chase in the world. And you know, we have to sort of stop and scratch our heads and think, what's to make of this? What's, you know, what do we make of, of Blaine's quote? What do we make of Stephen's reply? You know, waiting on the far side of the world until the storm blows over, the vainest chase in the world. It just seems to me that O'Brien has packed a great deal in this quote. Yeah. But we learned that Stephen's mind's really taken up with wanting to find out 
one, what happened in Malta after he left? You know, what happened to the French agents that he, he just set up, set up and handed to Ray with a bow on? And O'Brien writes, how to justify himself to Diana in the shortest possible time before she should make one of those rash, passionate moves so characteristic of her. You, you could almost say, Mike, there's not a minute for him to lose. <laughs> no, you could absolutely say that. Oh. Well, there's a couple of bits of jeopardy going on for Stephen here. Not only the relationship jeopardy, it also turns out he's got some of the regular Stephen kind of jeopardy because he's got to go and visit aboard another ship. And that means traveling in a small boat and climbing up the side. He almost falls in, but manages not to. And on deck, uh, Dr. Harrington talks to him about influenza and invites him to come and look at two cases of military fever as curious as he had ever seen occurring in twins and perfectly symmetrical. Hmm. Ah, now, maybe that's a reference to the brotherhood and the similarity of the the jeopardy and the life courses of Stephen and Jack. Maybe it's a reference to the two states of England and America. Oh, I don't know. All sorts of possible bits of symbolism there. Anyway, meanwhile, as we mull over the possible symbolism about twins and symmetry, Pocock, that's Commander Ives's political advisor, calls for Stephen. And seeing Pocock's face, Stephen says, do not tell me Lesueur was not taken. Because remember the words that Stephen spoke right at the end of the last chapter of Treason's Harbour. If they cannot lay their hands on the prime chief Judas, then there is the very devil in it. Stephen's expecting that this is going to wrap up all of the French intelligence operation in Valletta. But no, Pocock says that Lesueur had wind of Ray's approach. And we know how that happened, but Stephen doesn't know yet. And right. Lesueur got away. They had caught five lower-level people who had nothing to share before they were shot. And Boulet, the high-ranking civilian official who Stephen had noticed and listened in on in uh, Laura Fielding's um, house, was said to have killed himself before he was arrested. And I think, Mike, that's the, the person... Whose uh, who's cutting of his own throat had been referred to by Billy Sutton just a few paragraphs ago. Ray had not written to Stephen because he was allegedly out of order, although Lesueur would be caught with the £5,000 reward and with Boulet dead, hopefully then all Maltese French communication should stop. And as they talked, Pocock explained that Boulet, a left-handed man, was found with a weapon in his right hand. And Mrs. Fielding had a free pardon. Ray was on his way home overland and happy to help Maturin. Mike, there's, there's all kinds of things that make us uneasy here. And to top it all, Stephen Maturin says he plans to send a letter to his wife with Ray. Oh, my gosh. Now, maybe it's a little bit of a spoiler here, but let's just think about this. We were breathing sighs of relief back in Treason's Harbour that Stephen and Laura had managed to extricate themselves in spite of, albeit in ignorance of, Ray's activities as a French agent. Now it looks as though, as the potential carrier of Stephen's exculpatory letter back to Diana, it looks as though Ray has at least one more chance to put Stephen in jeopardy. But now it's his marriage rather than his safety that are under threat from Ray. So there's a whole new possibility here for Ray to do harm to Stephen. Right. And and Ray owes Stephen this enormous sum of money. We know that, uh, you know, Ray wanted him dead earlier. Yeah. He probably wants him ruined. Yeah. 
um, probably holds them great ill will. Yeah, this is, I'm, I'm with you, Ian. I, when I heard that Stephen was mailing a letter via Ray to Diana, I thought, this cannot be good. <laughs> well, Stephen and Pocock move on, and, and Stephen's asking, you know, kind of what happened with Mascara? And Pocock says, ah, well, as to that, the Oriental world, the East, is kind of Pocock's specialty, and that he has worked with Council Elliot back in Mascara to arrange a parasite. Parasite was an, a, an engram hit of 1807. It's the killing of a parent or relative, right? Uh, and, and given that they've arranged for this day of massacre to be killed, there's going to be a brand new agreeable day in his place. And Stephen notes that Parasite is much easier where there, you know, these countries where people have so many wives and concubines and so many kids. So you can always find somebody with a grudge here. And Pocock notes that it's very common in the East, but there seems to be a prejudice against it in the West. Mm-hmm. So he says, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you're speaking to the Admiral about it, the phrase I like to use is a sudden dynastic change. So <laughs> we have all kinds of spin going on here a little bit. But Stephen, you know, you said that Ray was out of order. Was it perhaps over Hart's death? And Pocock says, yeah. Uh, you know, he acted like he was mourning, but it was clear that, you know, he was acting like anybody who had just inherited like three or four hundred thousand pounds. But uh, he did seem to be affected by a nervous tension and exhaustion. And he said, you know, kind of between you and me, colleague, I don't believe he has a great deal of bottom. So we're we're back to this phrase we talked about last week in describing Ray here. Right now, Stephen, although is, is kind of glad of Ray's inheritance and is thinking, you know, maybe I'll get paid back this enormous gambling debt that he owes me. And Stephen then says, you know, is the Admiral going to need to see me because I'm really in a hurry to get to the top of the rock, the top of Gibraltar? And, and Pocock says, yeah, actually, the Admiral wants to talk to you about a, an American plan. And, and it's funny, Stephen wants to know what the Admiral thought of Jack's naval dealings back in Zambra. And, and Pocock wants to know, why Stephen got to get to the top of the rock in a hurry? And they're, they're kind of dancing around each other. And finally, Pocock just, just asks him because it's kind of impolite. It's, it's kind of none of your business, but he does. And, and Stephen says, oh, it's, you know, he just wants to see all these birds that are going to be flying over there, that this apparently is a real migration route. And, and at this time of year, there are all of these predators, all these raptors and, and many other birds. And Stephen, of course, lists them all, including a black stork, which Stephen has never seen. And then O'Brien writes, black stork, sir, said Pocock with a suspicious look. Black swans I've heard of, but, hmm, well, perhaps as time is getting on, I should give you an outline of the American plan. Hmm. So we, we have this interesting kind of black stork, black swan reference that could be just a little throwaway, could be another O'Brien Easter egg, could be something we can pull back the carpet on. And, and we could go kind of on and on on this. And I, I don't know, Ian, what's going on. You and I have talked about this a little bit, just, just a little bit of a background. Kind of at this time, nobody had ever heard of black storks or black swans until the end of the 1600s. And it really wasn't until later in the 1700s that you have them kind of described, late 1700s, really, uh, to, to sort of the full world here. The black swan is described in 1790, the black stork in 1758. 
Um, but the black swan's history is much older. Even in the second century, the Roman poet Juvenal has a, a Latin phrase, which means a rare bird in the lands and very much like a black swan. And it comes over time to mean that there's a fragility in any system of thought, you know, that everybody's only ever seen white swans, therefore all swans are white. Well, not actually. They are until you see one. Once you see one, so all the fundamental postulates of an argument can be disproved by one single observation here, this deductive logic. And, you know, our reasoning is sometimes off. We see a lot of instances of something and then it turns out not to be true. There's just that one instance which disproves it. So don't know why this black swan phrase comes to mean something that's impossible. Later, it means something that seemed impossible, but could be easily disproved or is later disproved. And so we're wondering, is O'Brien kind of signaling us to something that either has already happened, perhaps like Ray, that might be going to happen, maybe like Ives, maybe further down in the book, which we believe to be so, but is about not to be so, or is some well-held belief by one or more of our characters going to be turned on its head going forward? Oh, no idea. It's great, isn't it? And just just in this one little phrase, that we've got this classic O'Brien ambiguity in a black swan or something that was actually a contemporary discovery in Stephen Maturin's world, and also a link right. to a philosophical idea that gets us into you know the idea of uh, of, of logic. Oh, it's really really rich. Anyway, maybe maybe he didn't mean it that way. Maybe he just said, "Meh, black swan." <laughs> black swans, black storks, moving right. on. Right. So Jack is called in at long last to see Admiral Ives. And Jack, looking at the Admiral's face, thinks that he might be drunk. He's pink, he's flushed, he's sitting up straight. He's not kind of old and bowed. His cold old eyes, it says, have a youthful gleam. He shakes Jack's hand and says, he's delighted to see him. So another bit of anxiety temporarily undercut for Jack. The Admiral is in fine form. He congratulates Jack on what he calls a thumping victory, although he says no one would think so from your official letter. And Mike, you, you mentioned spin earlier on. We're going to get a lesson in spin from the Admiral here. The Admiral says Jack's no good at blowing his own trumpet. And by the way, the trumpet that needs to be blown here is also the Admiral's own. The letter, he says, is apologetic and is not triumphant enough concerned to say he says regrets to have to report not to worry says ives my secretary is going to rewrite it so to use his phrase you're not crying out stinking fish at the top of your voice and, and when it's rewritten he says the victory will be clear even to the ordinary newspaper reading cheesemongers as well as the professional men and i think that uh O'Brien is describing <laughs> the role of the spin doctor in the personification of Sir Charles Ives with a bit of scepticism and a bit of cynicism, but I think also a bit of admiration that maybe the Jack Aubrey's mm. of the world do sometimes need a bit of help in putting a positive spin. So I think Jack can be grateful for the help here. I think he's also grateful for this, uh, this nice bottle of drink, Sillery, that the Admiral shares and goes on to explain that even though they lost Admiral Hart and the Pollocks, the French two-decker, Mars, was brand new and twice as powerful. She stuck under the guns at Zambra, but with a new day in place, the French will never get her back. They had burned the big frigate that Jack had left grounded on the reef. So in the Admiral's eyes, the British had won by half of the ship of the line and a whole frigate. 
and Jack's rewritten letter is going to look great along with the Admiral's dispatch in the London Gazette. Yeah, I love this. So speaking of letters, the Admiral's kind of pointing out this huge pile of letters on his desk and they're talking about, gosh, you know, whoever came up with writing, you know, to be cursed. But he says that there are some good letters as well. And he hands one over to Jack and asks Jack to read it. And it says that his royal highness, so the king, is going to be making Ives a peer of Great Britain as soon as Ives says what title he would like to bear. And we've known all along since the last book that this is this is why Ives got himself to the Mediterranean. This is what he's been going after. Both of his brothers were made peers, and this is what he wanted more than anything in life. And Jack, Jack doesn't even finish reading it. He jumps up, gives him joy, and says that this does honor to the whole service. And he tells him how happy it makes him. And O'Brien writes, and indeed, talking about Jack, indeed his face shone with such honest pleasure as he stood there beaming at the admiral that Sir Francis looked at him with more affection than his hard old face had shown for many years. And then Ives says, it is perhaps a vanity, but I confess it pleases me very much indeed. An honor to the service, as you so rightly say, and you are part of it. If you read further on, you'll see he mentions our turning the French out of Marga. God knows I had no share of it. It was your doing entirely, though legally it was just within my time of command. So, you see, you've earned me at least one of the balls of my coronet. <laughs> <laughs> I just love this, that, you know, Jack is just so who he is yeah. and this joy, you know, with all the unhappiness, all the dismal things surrounding Jack right now, he can be just so delighted in the Admiral's great luck, great honor, great stroke of, of getting everything he's ever wanted. And and it touches this kind of old, cynical, hard horse in such a great way. I, I love that scene. It's great, isn't it? It's also great that Jack gets some credit and some recognition back from the Admiral. You know, he's getting some honest, sincere yes. thanks. He might not get his choice posting just at the moment. He might not get his own peerage. But it's really nice that the Admiral is, is kind of giving a bit, of, a bit of praise back to Jack. So, of course, the Admiral, to, to do the decent thing, invites Jack back tomorrow for the private celebration that's planned before the Admiral returns to the grim business of the Toulon blockade. He then tells Jack that there's intelligence aboard that the Americans are sending the frigate Norfolk, 32 guns, into the Pacific to attack British whalers. And Mike, now we get the drumbeat of the beginning of a plot. We learn that the Norfolk, fitted out newly by the Americans, has only four long guns. The rest are carronades. So even though they're heavy, the ship could be a match for the surprise if the surprise can play long bowls at a distance. And the Admiral wonders, the Admiral wonders whether Jack, with his seniority, would accept such a command. And Jack just about manages to contain, <laughs> contain his joy. Says he was promised the black water, but he would absolutely do this while waiting for an equivalent ship. He'd rather protect whalers than sit home idle. And this is not only great news for Jack, it's very happy news for the Admiral. He's delighted, he says. He hates officers who turn down active commands in wartime. And now, Mike, we get a, the beginnings of the opening of the plot of the Peter Weir movie. Right. Because we learned that the Norfolk was due to leave Boston on the 12th of the prime month and take merchantmen to San Martin, to Oropesa, to San Salvador and Buenos Aires. 
so that Jack might be able to cut her off before she rounds the horn. And nonetheless, he might have to follow her around the horn and into the Pacific. If he doesn't, it's a six months journey. And this is going to be very, very different kind of service from what you might call short haul Mediterranean sailing. This is going to be blue water sailing. Right. They, they're going to have to get Stephen's advice about which Spanish ports might be able to be put into for supplies and for refitting. The Admiral says he's in a promoting mood and he wants to spread happiness and asks Jack if he can recommend any of his men. And Jack is torn between looking after his shipmates and protecting the strength of his crew. But he looks after his shipmates by and large. He recommends the master, the gunner, and some young petty officers, and they all get warrants in bigger, more high-profile ships. Even though the Admiral had said he wasn't in a position to make commissions, Jack nonetheless mentions Honey, who had gone to Mahon in the launch, and Lieutenant Rowan, who had gone to Malta in the cutter. And so we've got this setup of this ship, the Norfolk, that's heading down the Atlantic coast of South America to be intercepted, we hope, by the surprise. Nonetheless, the surprise might have to follow into the, into the Pacific. That's exactly the same route as the route that's expected for the French ship, the Acheron, in the movie. And now, we'll come back later <laughs> to the question of why a movie studio, mostly US-owned, chose to have a French antagonist rather than an American one in the context of 2002-2003 global politics, which is when the uh, production and, and principal photography and release date was for the Peter Weir movie. But as I say, we might come back to that. They call in Maturin and Pocock, and they discuss the Norfolk's route down this Atlantic coast. The Admiral says that there's no intelligence about what might be going on past the Horn, so it'll be really important to take her before the Falkland Islands and to use a regular seagoing phrase, there's not a moment to be lost. The Admiral asks Maturin if it's safe for surprise to put on along the coast, and Stephen offers the opinion that San Martin is okay, um, also Oropesa and Brazilian San Salvador, but not the Argentinian ports of Buenos Aires and the River Plate. He says there's too much ill will against the British there. The tyrant in Buenos Aires, we learn, is directing his people's anger at foreigners and may mislead them, hinder them, or convey information to their enemy. The Admiral agrees with all of this, gives Aubrey his uh, his docket for six-month stores and says, don't you let those mumping villains at the Cooperage Wharf keep you standing off and on. As I said, there is not a moment to lose. Hmm. We love hearing that phrase in these books. What a way to end chapter one. Yeah. Not a moment to lose. <laughs> wow. Well, Jack and the Surprise appear to have a new lease on life, or at least an extension, one of at least six months. That's great news. The way the Admiral is singing Jack's praises. Of course, we also know that sometimes with O'Brien, when things look really good, so we, we got to ask ourselves, what about Diana? The French are still loose. What's a raid doing here? What about Jack's problems at home? Yeah. What else, Ian? Well, what's, what's happening, everybody, on the far side of the world? We've introduced the phrase, we know that this is going to be a long journey. We know that long journeys aboard the surprise with Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin have all kinds of twists and turns. What about this reference to a black swan, this kind of this philosophically impossible or rare bird? And what about a surprise French vessel and movie crew? How's that going to bring Mr. Crow and Mr. Bettany into play? Mike, I think... We're going to have to keep going with this. What do you say next week then 
to a little bit more, Patrick O'Brien. Oh, with all my heart. in which many of his colleagues had died, some under torture, he was by no means omniscient. Very good. He was capable of, God, omniscient, right? Omniscient, yeah, I think, yeah. Omniscient. He was by no means omniscient. He was capable of making mistakes, 